0: Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day. Father, I pray for those in our congregation and around the world who are suffering still from this virus, know some from our own congregation. Father, we just pray that you would uh, eradicate this virus, Lord, bring it to an end. Lord, I know that you've taught uh, our church, me personally, probably many could attest, some pretty significant lessons and times of isolation over this last couple of years and reflection upon you, upon the fragility of life. Lord, you are awesome. You are amazing. Uh, Lord, you transform us even in the midst of pain and struggle. In fact, that's where you do your best work, is when we cry out to you. Lord, we're crying out not only for protection and for Lord, just for salvation in this valley, for the message of the gospel to go forth. But we're also praying more specifically this morning that you would give us insight into your word, that you would transform us as we look at your word. James said it so well, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. We know you're going to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, like I said, uh, we're a little bit down, so I welcome those of you who uh, have chosen to uh, be online or at home or on on television, Lord. uh, We thank you for all of those that are tuning in with us today. Uh, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the Good Samaritan. Everybody knows the story of the Good Samaritan. Everybody knows that. Generally, people, okay, Good Samaritan, what's the Good Samaritan? Well, it's anybody who comes along and does something good for somebody maybe that they're not connected to that they don't even know it was an act of a good samaritan there's nothing more offensive than someone stopping as a good samaritan maybe somebody beside the road and then there's a, it's a ruse and someone attacks them in their efforts to be a good samaritan you hear those stories every once in a while everybody knows the expression some Don't know that it's even biblical. Others don't know that it was Jesus specifically. Others don't know that it was a parable that Jesus told. And many, even who have, know the story of the Good Samaritan, but they don't know its full context. And the better you know the context, the better you're going to be able to understand the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, let me be clear. Anytime you speak, everybody knows, or generally you know what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to tell people what you're going to tell them. You tell people, and then you tell people what you told them. That's the basic structure of any time time you have a a talk, and so that's usually my attempt. I'm not always great at it, but that's at least a structure in which I think. First of all, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. I'm in the The story of the Good Samaritan is a moral teaching. I'm not going to deny that. It is not, in my view, the primary purpose for which Jesus told the parable. Once you understand the depth of the parable he's teaching, I think it's going to blow your mind. It's going to help you understand the gospel better. Some people, many in first service, said it just gave me a clarity. It gave me either in my own walk or my ability to communicate the gospel to friends around me. So are you ready for this? Luke chapter 10 the story, eventually, of the Good Samaritan. We're going to have to do a little blocking and tackling here before we do it to give you the full thrust of what I believe Jesus is trying to communicate. Luke 10, verse 25. And a lawyer, not a trial lawyer, not a lawyer as we may perceive, this would have been an expert in the Mosaic law, the Torah or the Torah, 613 laws. Hey, Well, he stood up and he put him to the test. Now, quick question. Was this a nefarious attempt? Was this, was this this expert in the law trying to catch Jesus in a failed answer so that they might come against him? I don't know. We're really not told. Was this a legitimate question? I don't know. Some skew one way or the other. I just kind of stay, uh, I don't know. I don't know what the purpose was. I do know that what the interaction was, and I know the profound answer that Jesus gave by answering his question with a, with a question. "'Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?' Good question. I will tell you that there is not a more important question that you will ever ask, not, "'Who's my family?' if you were adopted, not, uh, you know, not, nothing. "'How's my finances?' No, no question will be more important to you than in your life than being able to answer how you inherit eternal life." And what he's saying there, how do I go on in the presence of God for all of eternity? Not how do I not cease to exist. I'm a soul. Uh, It was understood by the Jewish community that the souls would be transferable into the next life. And that there was recognition. We see that in Isaiah, recognition of those who had departed into Sheol. Uh, So it wasn't an, an issue of annihilation. It was an issue of how can I go on eternally in the presence of God? Is there a more important question? I don't think so. And then Jesus said to him, well, what is written in the law? Now, what is he doing? He's answering a question with a question. This is part of the Socratic method of answering a question with a question. Now, this does any number of things that are incredibly positive. First of all, it gets someone to state a position, a a case. In fact, Oftentimes, when people have to answer a question that they've asked with another question, it unpacks some of the potential shortcomings, faultiness of their own line of thinking. Why would they have asked that question in the first place? So in answering the question with another question, it unpacks the mind of the question asker. It's really a profound way. I do that so often. I just go into culture and I ask questions. Why? Because Jesus did it so expertly that it was so insightful, not only for his listeners, but for the person asking the question. And Jesus asked, well, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? Make your case. And he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and with your strength and with all your mind. And, and, well, you should probably love your neighbor as yourself as well. And Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Now, catch this. Do this and you will live. Now, here's the question. Why is Jesus saying that? Why, why, why would the cross be necessary? Why? In fact, starting in Luke 9, verse 51, this is called the Luke's travel narrative. It's Jesus uh, movement towards Jerusalem for the purpose of our second song said he was going to become a, God's ransom. God was going to ransom us by, well, by by taking the life of his own son. And I know in a culture that that's too hard to understand. People think that's weird. It's in What is this? This is just bizarre. Uh, why would one person have to die for for everybody? And yet Jesus has set his mind on going to Jerusalem. Disciples don't understand it. They have no construct in which to understand this. He said, well, do this and you will live. But now this made the guy very uneasy, and this was the very purpose for which Jesus allowed him to ask, answered with a question, and it, it's this. Why? He starts to feel, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, I said it out of my own mouth. Love God with everything I've got, all my heart, my soul, my strength, my mind, everything, and love my neighbor as myself. I'm hearing these words come out of my mouth, but the more I say them, the more I realize that I feel pretty uneasy. Do I really love my neighbor as myself? Do I care about my neighbor as much as I care about me? Am I as concerned about my neighbor's 401K as my own 401K? Am I as concerned about the cleanliness of my neighbor's car as I am about my car? Is I, Am I concerned about as much my neighbor's children and their and their grandchildren as I am my own children and my own? Does my life display loving my neighbor as much as I love myself? And who could say that they actually love God with? every fiber of their being. I mean, any reasonable person looks into his own heart and questions the, well, the the moral ground on which they stand. And so his uneasiness leads to a question that then will lead to the parable. So understand the context. Wishing to justify himself. He said, well, who is my neighbor? So this is the biggest dichotomy. If you don't understand what we're about to talk about now, you do not understand the gospel. But prayerfully today, you're going to understand the gospel in a deeper way than you ever have. There are two kinds of people in the earth. There are the self-justified and there are the God-justified. Without Jesus heading, but setting his heart to go to Jerusalem, knowing that he's going to undergo excruciating pain and die a brutal death, naked abused, on a cross, shedding his own blood. Well, that's for what? That's for God justification. To be justified is a legal term. It means to be acquitted. How is the world going to be acquitted? I had a had a nice encounter with a really precious guy that I'm just now kind of getting to know the other day and as we were talking and he asked me a few questions, and I asked him back. I said, well, tell me about your spiritual journey. Do you do, do you believe in God? Do you have a sense of God out there? Are you an atheist? Do you consider yourself an agnostic? Tell me about that. And he said, well, I, I think there's probably something out there, but I think it all kind of gets back to one single thing, which is, you know, pretty much the golden rule. And I think, and I, and I thought, well, that's... Do you realize how many people that you come across that may never be willing to come to church the red door to go go with you to to a fellowship group or anything that would, that that something in their mind is if there is a God and if there is accountability out there, I will say this, or I feel that I am already okay, because it's generally, I'm, you know, I don't, I, I mean, I'm not the bad guy. You know, I'm one of the good people. I'm not one of the bad people. Isn't that pretty much everybody? Even the the the, the most hardcore atheist deep down is there just moving off into slumber there's a sense of through creation Romans 1 you can see what's made and You hear me talk about it all the time. I mean, I I love to think about what's made. Science shows us more and more clearly as each year goes by. No telling what this new web telescope will tell us more and more, the design in all of this. It is impossible that we are here. It is not improbable. It is impossible that we are here. It, It demands a divine direction, a divine intelligent design. That doesn't make it personal yet, but it does demand it, and so if there's something out of there, well, you know, I'm obviously part of the part of the good people. The disciples were making the same mistake, and one of the things that we learn through the gospel of Luke is this sub-theme emerges over and over, and it's the sub-theme of self-justification, and Jesus addresses it, and he addresses it over and over again, either explicitly or often implicitly, as is the case even here with the Good Samaritan. Do you remember uh, a little bit more blocking and tackling here? Luke chapter 12. Uh, some people think this is the same incident. they are actually two different incidents. Luke 12, Verse 28, one of the scribes came and heard him arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, ask him, Jesus, what commandment is the foremost of all? Now, he's not asking what leads to eternal life. He's asking what is the greatest commandment? What's the commandments that's the most important? Jesus now is not going to answer him with a question. He's going to answer him with an answer, and he gives him an answer, and it's the same that the the legal expert gave. Jesus answered and said, the foremost is hero Israel. This is part of the Shema, this is Deuteronomy chapter 6, hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You must love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. Everything that's in you, is all needs to be laid bare. Embrace the creator of the universe. That's the Shema. Love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and strength. Verse 31, the second is is this, you shall love the neighbor, your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. See, Jesus is giving, well, he's saying, remember what he told the first guy, you're you're so close, you're close to the kingdom, you're not far from the kingdom. The scribe said to him, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one besides him, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and love... And to love one neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he's on, you ever had one of those uh, bloodhounds? You ever seen one of those? And they can pick up a scent. And, you know, and, and so they, they take these guys out to do some kind of cold case file. And they come to a Y in the road. All right, where's the blood? How am I going to go? Going to go this? No, no. Oh, he picks up the scent over here. He's on the track. He's on the right track. You're so close. Jesus saw when he had answered and tells you, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. See, he quotes the Shema. He quotes Leviticus 19, to love your neighbor as yourself. He's pulling this from the Torah, the the moral aspects, not the ceremonial, the legal, or the, the other aspects of, of just community law, etc. The, the moral fiber of the Torah is encapsulated in these two. Love God with everything and love your neighbor just like you love yourself. This guy was so close. He was just about to crack the code. What was the code? The only justified are the God-justified. The self-justified do not work. You will always be uneasy. Can I just tell you this? I meet them every day. They're people that have gone to church their entire lives. And if you ask them about eternity, you know what they say? Well, you know, it's okay because one day you'll be with Jesus. Well, I hope so. Can I say when I get that reaction, I know the person yet does not understand the true fullness of the gospel. Maybe a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of religion, but then a lot of my stuff, a lot of, a lot of, I contribute a lot to my own salvation. They wouldn't say it. They couldn't even articulate it. It's a little part of the Socratic method. Some of these questions force out your premise, and then in examining your own words that have come out of your mouth, you realize, this makes me uneasy. The gospel is good news because it makes you settled in your understanding of what makes you right before God. If you don't realize you're right before God, then you're always going to be uneasy. This guy was terrified. This is a Mosaic law expert in seeking to justify himself. Well, who's my neighbor? Are you God-justified here this morning, or are you self-justified? Even in part, Jesus, we're going to jump eight chapters ahead into Luke chapter 18, Verse 9, Jesus was very clear. He put a religious guy, one of the one of the most, I mean, you would talk about he was so married to the law and his ability to lead it out. It was one of the strictest of all the sects of Judaism, Sadducees, Pharisees, Essenes, etc. The Pharisees were so punctilious about the law. And then he put him side by side with one of the most despised in all of Israel, a publican, a tax collector. Listen to what Jesus says. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves. Are you here this morning trusting in yourself? Don't be part of the Matthew 7 crowd that says, Oh Lord, we've cast out demons. We've done all these, done miracles. We've done all these things in your name. And Jesus says, I, I'm going to say to them, Depart from me, for I never knew you. But I've done all these things. Notice, people are always giving a list of why they're right with God. Anytime you encounter that in your own heart or in the hearts of others, you know now how to address it. Do you encounter that in your own thinking? Have I done enough? Have I done enough to be saved? Have I, have I wow, I get a little uneasy. Are you uneasy today about your faith? Today could be a, a watershed moment in your lives. I'll tell you that right now because you could you can walk away at the end of this message being not uneasy at all but being on absolutely at the bedrock foundation of what the gospel says you can be god justified and i'm going to show you exactly how to do that in one second one second is a you know told the parable to some people who trusted themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt you still don't if you view others with contempt you still don't understand the gospel with contempt let me give you an example. I, I believe that abortion is murder. Why? Because I believe Psalm 139. Now, some of you in here, there's no question, or in the hearing, have had an abortion. I have no contempt for you, zero. I have great compassion, great compassion. I can stand up or, or feel strongly about a moral code and feel zero contempt for the breakers of that code because I understand the gospel. I myself have been a breaker of the moral code. doesn't matter whether it was abortion or pornography or adultery or theft or narcissism or any other thing that you can add to the litany of violations of the moral code, of not loving God with all my heart, mind, soul, or spirit, or loving my neighbor as myself. I stand convicted, but I also stand justified. Are you one of the self-justified? Well, in this case, he was. Now, listen to what it says. Two men went up into the temple to pray and one a Pharisee, religious, very religious, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like, what, other people. Now, you fill it in. Put your culture, you're Republican, I'm, thank God that I'm not like Pelosi, Pelosi. Are you on the Democratic side? Thank God I'm not like one of those, you know, January 6th insurrectionists. Are you pro-vaxxers? Thank God I'm not like those anti-vaxxers. Thank God I'm not like, thank God I'm like you cat, thank God I'm not like those uh evangelicals. Thank God I'm not like those charismatics. Thank God I'm not like we 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 mark ourselves off and we allow in the in thinking that we're supporting the idea of righteousness, we begin to have contempt for those around us. Samaritans? Thank God I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and even like this pathetic tax collector over here. Oh God, can you see it? Oh God, thank you so much that I'm not like, is it another ethnicity? Is there racism in your heart? Is it a is it another religious group? It is is it Islam? Is it I'm not talking about standards of truth. I'm talking about people. Is there contempt? in you, then he gives a list. It's what all self-justifying people, if you give a list in your heart knowing that because of this list, I must be right with God, then I'm telling you, you still have self-justification in your heart. I fast twice a week, I pay my tithes. But the tax collector stands some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast. God, be merciful to me. I'm pathetic. Would Jesus then say, I tell you, this man went to his house justified. Justified, there it is, that legal term rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What did this man do? He identified as, well, as we're going to see, he identified as the man who was half dead, naked, beaten, and completely, completely no hope at all. That's me. And by being in the temple, it was an act of repentance, whether or not he ever... Sometimes we have to think we have to say the right words. Do you have a heart of repentance? Do you have a heart that recognizes your own position before God? Again, we underestimate our own wickedness and we vastly underestimate the holiness of God. Now, the disciples had the same problem. We're just about to get to the parable, which we'll close with, but the disciples had the same issue. They were still so fixated on power. They were fixated. They, they were the in crowd. Jesus has chosen us. We're just going to go back. I'm just going to jog your memory from a few weeks ago when we were talking in Luke chapter 9. Again, now, where were they going? They were going through a Samaritan village. The hated Samaritans. The despised. You fill in the blank. Any, any, any group or people you feel contemptuous toward, this would have been it. They're going through the village of the Samaritans. We're the in crowd. We love the power. We're the good guys. These are clearly the bad guys. John answered verse 49 of Luke 9 and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we, we tried to prevent him. Because he doesn't follow along with us, we're the good guys. You've chosen us. I mean, granted, we were fishermen and tax collectors, uh, but we're not like the Pharisees, and we're certainly not like the Samaritans, and we're, we're we're the chosen ones. But Jesus said to him, do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. I think about that all the time. There's a lot of division in churches and things and people across this valley, across the country, across the, across the world. If they're lifting up Jesus and worshiping Jesus and exalting Jesus, I can have dinner with any of them. And even if they're not, I can have dinner with them. Are you in that freedom place, or is there still this identity of good guys versus bad guys? They're saved people, and they're unsaved people. They're people that have, what did that song say? Applied the blood, and they're people that have not applied the blood. That's true. But in the end, the whole story of the gospel is you're all bad guys, but I've come to rectify the solution, the situation. Jesus said, verse 51, now when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Why? He knew he was going to have to pay a brutal price. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him, but they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So the Samaritans hated the Jews. The Samaritans were no better. They they hated the Jews. So they had contempt for the Jews. When the disciples came, James and John, they saw this. They said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Have you had that in your heart lately? Lord, I would just love if you could just take this group of people or this crazy lot and if you could just go ahead and consume them with fire, my life would be much better. Now, you would admit that, certainly maybe not in church, But would your spouse say, I think, honey, that maybe that contempt has been a little bit in your tone over the last few years. But he turned and he rebuked them and he said, you don't have any idea what spirit you're of. Now, with that as a backdrop, this is the closing. Are you ready? The story of the Good Samaritan and its deeper meaning. Verse 30, Luke 10. Jesus replied, replied to what? Who's my neighbor? Well, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now it's important. Just I want you to try to develop a mental. That first that first worship song was over the old city of Jerusalem. Just on the on the portion on the on the eastern side of Jerusalem, slightly to the north, there's a little road that descends towards Jericho, the north. East side of the old city, and it descends rapidly. It descends about thirty-five hundred feet or so. So you're about twelve hundred feet above sea level there, and believe it or not, Jericho and down to the Dead Sea is over two thousand feet below sea level. Very unique place in the world, but it's a quick, it's a precipitous drop of about seventeen miles. Robbers were everywhere because it's in the mountains, it's mountainous. It's not a lot of vegetation, but it's mountainous. Uh, if you've been with me to Israel, and I've taken many people there, we, we kind of go down through that area, or actually when we experience it, we're going up because we're at the Dead Sea and we're working our way up, 17 miles. They call it the way of blood. You know why? Because so many people get robbed and, and stripped and beaten and left for dead beside the road. Why? Well, you can't, today it's more cyber attacks, but back then what you were wearing, anything you might have on you was the most valuable thing probably that most people had. Clothing was incredibly valuable. So, he tells this parable on the way of blood. And he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now. Why the differentiation between a priest and a Levite? The priest, no doubt, was a Levite, but then the Levite maybe was just helped in temple service. The priest certainly was tasked with greater responsibilities, some teaching responsibilities in the temple, et cetera. The other Levite was probably there for other purposes. Maybe he was just a a gatekeeper or some kind of a judge of sorts or maybe even a musician. But the two were, the point is this, the two were very religious, Either way. Now you got to realize that the laws of purity were very important; that they didn't touch a dead corpse. I am going to set this up in your mind. Jesus is not giving you an opportunity to be a good Samaritan by, hey, um, you know, I'm near the casino. There's a few panhandlers out there. I roll down my window about that far and I stick out a five dollar bill and I go back in. That that costs. There's nobody in this audience that that costs anything. That's like that's nothing. There's no risk in that, really. I guess they could, you know, try to jump in your car, but there's really no risk. There's all kinds of witnesses and everything. This is something very different. What's being asked here is to love this neighbor in a sense that you're willing to sacrifice everything. You're a priest. You're about to violate the laws of ritual purity. Clearly, you're out in the middle of nowhere. This guy's been robbed, no witnesses, evidently and he's uh, stripped naked, well, are the robbers still there? Are they surrounded? Are they just on the other side of that big rock over there? If I take my time and go down and try to help this guy, is the same fate going to befall me? You do realize that the story involves incredible risk. Why was the man asking the question? He was attempting to justify himself. Jesus was going to make it virtually impossible for him to be intellectually honest. Likewise, a Levite came to the place. But, verse 33, a Samaritan, but a Samaritan. (laughs) Oh, man. Jesus, that is tough. But a Samaritan? Why cast a Samaritan in a positive role? Please. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt, number one, he felt compassion, came to him and bandaged his wounds and poured oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took two denarii and gave gave them to the innkeeper and said, that's about two days' wages. Take care of him and whatever you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Now, before you think that's not a big deal, how long was the guy going to be away? How long was this going to take to bring this back guy to he- health? Could it be a week, a month? Could this Was this a wealthy man, this uh, Samaritan? Probably not. Uh, he was this was incredible sacrifice. In fact, if he came back and the tab had been run up too high, he could have actually been potentially enslaved himself as a debtor to the innkeeper and their legal recourse wasn't bankruptcy back then. It was like, now you're going to have to be, live in servitude to the innkeeper. He could have been robbed. He could have been stripped. The same fate, it was costing him two days. He's going to have to come back. He could potentially be a slave potential ritual impurity for these priests. Do you realize how hard the question was Who's my neighbor? Jesus didn't say the guy down uh, the thing. You should have given $5 to the guy outside panhandling. That is not what Jesus set this up as. He set it up as that almost impossible thing for any good Levite to perform. Why? Then Jesus asked in verse 36, Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hand? Oh, Is Jesus good or what? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And then Jesus said, go and do the same. So here's my question for you Is this primarily a moral teaching? I don't know about primarily. It is a moral teaching. We're going to finish with that. It is a story about God justification versus self justification. And here's how. On the way, he was on the way to Jerusalem. His whole journey was predicated on the fact that he was about to be brutally slaughtered as an innocent, unblemished lamb for the world. Everything he's doing screams, This has to happen. Otherwise, nobody's going to be justified. What do I do to inherit eternal life? Who's my neighbor? Well, let me tell you a little story. But I see, I think Luke picks up on this. Luke picks up on this justification issue. I think we know through the story that who is the the stripped, naked, half-dead person? That's me. And that's you. Ephesians 2 said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the natural course of this world. Stripped, beaten? Has life beaten you up? Has, Has your own sin beaten you up? Are you naked? Are you clothed in the righteousness of Christ? That's why the language, the metaphor of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ is so profound throughout all of Scripture. And finally, in Revelation, we see the saints clothed in white linen, not naked and half beaten, half dead, left beside the road, robbed, and potentially even enslaved. He had nothing, probably his next step would have been slavery, if not already. So who's the who is the Good Samaritan? Well, I think it's Jesus. Look, say, well, this is an allegorical interpretation. I, I I appreciate that, but I think this is clear through what Jesus is saying. It's not the primary answer to the question he gave him his answer. You can't live up to this. You think you are, you can't live up to it. My disciples couldn't, you can't. Who is it that heals our wounds? Well, Isaiah had seen it 700 years before the time of Jesus. What do you think about the oil and the wine? Oil is always symbolic of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, and wine, the part of the new covenant, it's blood. This is my covenant. This is my blood shed for you. That's what heals. I'm going to cover you in the blood, and then I'm going to pour the Holy Spirit into you where you now have the want to, the power, and the intention to be different people. Jesus took our place to take us to a place of safety. And then finally, at the risk of his own life, he paid the entire price. Not only a two denarii's worth, but his entire life. Galatians two sixteen, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith. How are you justified? You may be asking, well, how can I be part of the God justified? You're justified through faith in Jesus. And secondly, Romans chapter 5, verse 9, much more, now having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Can I say that again? Justified by what? Well, thank God I'm not like these people. I kind of hold to the golden rule as best I can. Here's my list. Thank God I'm not like that. I pay my ties. I come to church the red door almost, you know, when I feel like it, and uh, you know, and I watch when I can, and and uh, I'm a pretty good guy. and I really even cheated that much on, you know. Well, anyway, do you feel uneasy in your faith? Do you feel this this sense of I hope? You don't have to feel that anymore. You just don't understand the gospel. The gospel is, I believe that Jesus' death on the cross for me made everything right with God, period. And by the shedding of his blood, I am justified. Once you know that, you don't have to freak out. You don't have to get up and wonder. You don't have to fear a cancer diagnosis. Of course, nobody wants to go through cancer. Nobody wants to go through cancer, but you don't have to freak out about it. Nobody wants the Omicron virus or the Delta or the Alpha or any other variant that will come up, but I don't have to be freaked out about it. Why? I know where I'm going. We say, well, that's pretty pompous. No, I know where I'm going. That's pretty narrow. I know where I'm going based upon what the Word tells me and Jesus' very words Himself. His death on my behalf. Why do people think that's bad news? That's incredible news, but you need to add this and this. No, to be saved. Now, of course, that brings up the final point. Why did Jesus say, go and do the same? It is a moral teaching. Once you've been justified by faith through his blood, then what? Then go and do the same. Before, you didn't have the power or the intention to do it. Now, somehow, you just want to make him famous. I was speaking to someone outside as they were leaving afterwards. Some folks that have been coming from Rancho La Quinta, several couples that have come And, and one of them named Harry, and I said, Harry, I said, let's say that you were walking, we were standing right up by the uh, road in front of the theater here, say you were just about to walk across the street here, and you, your hearing wasn't that good, and, and I could see there was a group, and I'll, and I'll just categorize people, stereotype, a bunch of high schoolers, and they had their dad's hot Ferrari, you know, and he was coming screaming down about 100 miles an hour right in front of the theater, and I looked out, and I saw you, and you're hearing one that great, and you were walking across, and I dove out into the middle of the street. I grabbed you by your shoulder blades. I thrust you up onto the other side of the street there, uh, and then I was hit by the Ferrari and killed immediately. What would your reaction be to that? His wife's name is Caroline. I said, do you think you would Say, well, you know, I didn't ask Jeff to do that for me. You know, <laughs> I hear that all the time. Well, I didn't ask Jesus to die for me. Or would the, would the response be, well, you know, well, his estate wasn't set up that well, and it went into this uh, the purgatory of, you know, gosh knows what, and and uh, Caroline's now destitute on the street. In fact, last time we saw Caroline, she's homeless. And nobody cares about Caroline. I mean, that's absurd. If Harry, let's flip it. Harry pushed me, you don't think I would care about whether Caroline was well or not? You don't think that I'd, for the rest of my life, be saying, Harry pushed me out of the way? Harry pushed me out of the way of the car. Or reciprocally, if he pushed me out of the way. I mean, if I pushed him out of the way, nobody cared about Laura? Laura can't make it. She's struggling. we still got, you got a new grandbaby in this, and she's out on the street. She's homeless out on the street. Well, you know, I didn't ask Jeff to push me. I didn't ask Harry to push me out of the way. Really? Or would you spend the rest of your life telling the story? You probably would. I shouldn't even be here but now. But there's a guy named Harry, or there was a guy named Jeff, and he pushed me out of the way of these crazy teenagers. And at the risk of his own life, he gave his own life to make sure I was okay. You, don't, you think you'd forget the story or not care about the consequences, the implications? You wouldn't do everything to either take care of Caroline or, Her- or Laura? Really? Once you understand the gospel, you'll spend the rest of your life wanting to make Jesus famous because it's the natural response to understanding the gospel, not to getting in. You go now and do the same. So we're going to worship with this last song. No longer slave. See, you don't have to be that person on the side of the road. I, I'm going to give you... This song is beautiful because it, it's a little trail going through the forest. And the song, the words are powerful. I'm, not, I don't, I'm no longer a slave. I'm no longer the guy that's dead, half naked, half dead, half fully naked, half dead, beaten, bruised, no hope whatsoever. I'm no longer that guy. The Lord found me somewhere along the path. Did you know we're all, all of us, are in that condition along the way of blood. Maybe not literally, obviously, from Jerusalem to Jericho, but some way you have to identify as the person on the side of the road. And Jesus, of all people, is there to pour water and wine on you. You can do that today. You can say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I believe in you. And I believe that your vicarious death for me through the shedding of your blood gives me full access, full, it's a full acquittal before an almighty God that's too holy to fathom. And on that basis, I give you my life that can change today. You never have to be uneasy and you never have to justify yourself again before God.